welcome to the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group, coming to you from Washington, D.C. and beyond. I'm Raka Banerjee. And I'm Srimathi Sridhar. This episode is all about migration, people moving their lives across borders through choice, for economic reasons, or because of displacement. It's a hot topic in many parts of the globe, with 2.3% of the world's population living outside their country of nationality. And with global economic imbalances, demographic changes, climate change, and conflict, migration is only set to increase. So what are the benefits migration can bring? We'll be taking a closer look at the big numbers from the World Bank's recently released World Development Report. So there are actually more British citizens living outside of the UK than migrants living in the UK. Many migrants live in Nigeria, well, actually many Nigerians live outside of Nigeria. This is not a question of one group of country versus another group of country. This is more a question of how you manage this sort of movement by countries at all levels of income. We also hone in on two countries with very different experiences, Colombia and the Philippines. And here are some personal stories giving us an insight into this complicated subject. I came from a very poor family, so I need to, to change. I, I have to do something to change the economic status of my family. All that and more coming up in the Development Podcast. you've put together some numbers for us from this latest report into migration. Yeah, it's been an interesting one. And we'll get into those in a moment. But first, let's get a snapshot from two parts of the world where migration has topped the economic agenda in very different ways. Colombia, and in a few minutes, the Philippines. Let's start with Colombia. So beginning in 2015, millions of Venezuelans began fleeing their country amid economic and political crises. Neighboring Colombia was the front line of this migration crisis. But Colombia, a middle-income country still emerging from decades of conflict, saw a development opportunity in welcoming and integrating these migrants. Paul Blake went to the border town of Cucuta to find out more. It's the biggest movement of people in modern Latin American history. Over eight years, more than seven million people are believed to have fled Venezuela, spanning out across South America and beyond. And for many, the journey begins here on the Simon Bolivar Bridge that connects Venezuela with Colombia. The sheer number of people that have crossed this bridge since 2015 would threaten to overwhelm the government services and upend the politics of a far wealthier country. And yet Colombia hosts some 2.5 million migrants, implementing a range of measures, both addressing the crisis and creating opportunity for migrants and host country alike. So let's give you a sense of some of the first impressions a migrant might have coming from the Venezuelan side over here to the Colombian side. They're greeted immediately by a number of signs while still on this bridge that crosses the border. This one says, do you need information about your rights in Colombia and tells them they can go to this sort of reception point, this orientation point here on the Colombian side. Over here, this one says, if you don't want to return to your country, know your rights at the reception point. And finally, this one just sort of sets the mood. It says, this is a zone free of discrimination. In a small beauty salon tucked away in Bogota, a frenetic city of over 8 million, I went to meet one Venezuelan entrepreneur who packed up her life and made the journey. 
Deshabelle Bravo now specializes in tattooing of eyebrows, a popular service called micropigmentation. She explained to me why she decided to leave five years ago. Can you talk to us a little bit about your decision to move to Colombia? What was the motivation? One of the main reasons for migrating to another country was the economic situation. My career was no longer earning me enough, and the economic situation for many professionals had deteriorated. Teachers like me were very affected. Teaching is one of the most important careers, but we were no longer earning the money that we needed, and that motivated me. But it's a, it's a big decision. Yes, it, it was very difficult, a very strong decision, very painful, because I'm the only girl in my family, and it was a painful decision in relation to my family. I'm very attached to my parents, so getting out was very difficult. What, the day that you moved, what was going through your head? What was, what was your kind of thoughts, your emotions on the day when you started to head for the border? Mucho miedo. It was really scary to face a change because it was a drastic change. I didn't really know how to get to know a new country, and that was a strong feeling. I cried a lot. I cried a lot because I wanted to come, but I wanted to stay with my parents. It was more a sentimental thing, but it was a very strong shock leaving where you are to go and do something completely different. It's a, a chapter turn. Mm -hmm. Do you want a break? Un, un ratito? Mm -hmm. At this moment, Deshabelle became visibly emotional, describing the heart-wrenching decision to move that so many others from Venezuela have made. Here in Colombia, Deshabelle has the right to live and work, to health care, and for education for her children. For decades, Colombia was a source of migration. Amid violence and strife, more people were leaving the country than moving to it. But as the Venezuelan crisis emerged, flows shifted, dramatically. Officials in Colombia realized there was an opportunity in the mass exodus if it could be managed rather than controlled. Alejandro Botero Barco was one of the three Colombian governments that has now overseen the crisis response. I met her in a bustling cafe, and she explained the background to the decision to integrate Venezuelan migrants. Gracias. How should the instrument be that is permanent enough that they can actually build a life, and that is also going to help us as a country economically as well, if we have an educated influx of migrants that are going to help us build the economies. It was that was sort of the perspective that we we're looking at, not more how are we going to shut the border because we don't want any more. That, that was really not something that that we considered. And I think it's all because of that shared background and the fact that even if we tried, it would have been possible. And the rise in GDP was, I think, two or three points in the next 10 years if you had that proactive uh, approach where they would be able to work and not work for one or two years, but where they could have that 10-year perm permit, which was the sort of, I think, what was most innovative so they can do everything except vote. Right now, what we have to do is to make sure that as a country, we make good on our promise. And this is something, says Paula Rosiasco, a senior social development specialist with the World Bank, that is a long-term challenge. I think that there are two critical things, right? Like one is granting uh, the right to stay, to work, to move, and to access services. And the second one is a time frame. 
is that they are doing it for 10 years, as opposed to every year or every two years that create a lot of, a lot of uncertainty. Paula says that some of the fears many people have about immigration tend to cluster around economics. One critical thing that we have found that is important to explain to people is that actually we don't have less. By having three more million people, the pie grows and we're distributing a bigger pie among more people, right? These are people who are going to be demanding uh, services, buying things, paying rent. We fear the poor because we think that they, because they're poor, they're going to steal, they're going to attack us, there is going to be resentment, etc. And Venezuelans are very entrepreneur, they have higher education levels. The only way how we cannot fear the poor is solving or providing economic opportunities for all the poor, not just Venezuelans. But also, uh, it, it has enriched the country already, right? Like we're seeing Venezuelan artists bringing new twists to Colombian music. We have done a lot of work um, on perceptions. We have, for example, work on radionovelas, radio soap operas, and other means to bring people closer to how they understand the situation and help them make better informed uh, opinions about it. Back at the salon, Deshabel, who was unable to get a job as a teacher here when she arrived because her qualifications weren't accepted, despite having many job offers, has created new life for herself and even employs a staff member. So how does she see her future? What is your kind of dream for the future? Do you want to grow this business? Do you want to go back to Venezuela? What is your sort of hope for the future? Quiero expandir mi negocio. I want to expand my business, something bigger, many more services, something in the future that will be a beauty salon, a bigger salon, and to be here and in Venezuela. In the Philippines, the picture as far as migration is very different. The Philippines has one of the largest rates of outward migration of anywhere in the world. Immigrants typically send money back to family members while working abroad, sometimes for years at a time, in regions such as the Gulf and countries like Singapore. Many depend on these remittances, and the flow of money inward from migrant workers abroad has contributed greatly to the infrastructure of the country and its economic development for decades. But what about immigrants who return home? Let's hear from Paul again. I went to meet Angelito Castro, a fish farmer in Mindanao. I am Angelito Castro, a licensed fisheries aquaculturist by profession. Tucked away behind a forest of palm trees on the Philippines' southern island, Angelito, his wife, and their two children show me around the farm he is building using the money and skills he brought from abroad. He told me a bit about his experience working all over the world. Been practicing for 12 years. I uh, spent most of my career overseas. Started my career in Saudi Arabia and then transferred to Colombia. Then after Latin America and Colombia, I transferred to Qatar. After Qatar, the last country I work with is in Indonesia. We started two and a half years ago. We used the money that we earned for those years of working overseas. Uh, we Filipinos in the Philippines, we known to send workforce overseas. We call that overseas Filipino workers. Almost all parts of the world, yeah, there's Filipino because of, there's a lot of reasons why Filipino chose to go abroad to work, living, living behind our families. It's a lot of sacrifices. Number one there is for family, to uplift no, the economic situation of our family, to send our children to best schools, to help our siblings, our brothers, our families, relatives. 
helping them to have capital to start their own business especially in, uh, on myself is to start my own family because we start from zero back in manila i wanted to get a little more context to stories like this one so i asked alvin ong a professor at ateneo university how common is this in the street where i grew up i think half of the people have gone to work abroad but but they're coming back home to, you know, they're not permanent migrants and I think in every family, in any area in the country, they will, there will be a migrant. Of course, it's a personal decision and the benefit of the families around it, you know, contributed to, to the communities and eventually large-scale opportunities uh, for the private sector had, you know, converted this to much larger uh, elements in, in the country. So. This, the money they have sent back home, when it's pulled together, it helped pump the economy, protect us from uh, a lot of uh, uncertainties. Now, for example, um, this pandemic, the savings that they have generated all these years uh, cushioned us from uh, a more difficult time. That's why the government has called them modern heroes. They continue to like, protect the economy from, uh, from headwinds. Back on the farm, I wanted to hear about the sacrifices that workers like Angelito make. He was away for long periods at a time, including when his children were very, very young. But he says it was worth it. Imagine you're miles, thousands of miles away from your family, you know? The longingness, you know, when you're alone, when you have problems, you have nothing to talk to if you're sick. I came from a very poor family, so I need to, to change. I, I have to do something to change the economic status of my family. Thanks so much to Paul Blake and all of his contributors. So Raka, can you give us some big picture numbers now on the state of migration around the world? Absolutely. So the big number, how many migrants are there in the world right now, right? How many people live outside of their country of nationality? According to the latest World Development Report, the number is 184 million people, which is about 2.3% of the world's population. 37 million of these people are refugees, and the global population, currently around 8 billion, is expected to reach 9.7 billion. And that's by 2050, right? Yes, exactly. And the majority of that growth will be from low-income countries. By contrast, high-income countries have aging populations and a shrinking labor force. So competition for migrants to fill these roles is expected to increase. That's kind of the big picture backdrop to all of this. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. And I noticed that you defined a migrant as someone who lives outside of their country of nationality. So the key distinction is being a citizen? Yes, exactly. Uh, so the World Development Report defines migrants based on their citizenship. So, you know, once someone has obtained naturalized citizenship in their new country of residence, they would not be classified as a migrant anymore, at least by this report. Okay, got it. And can you tell us a bit about the geographic spread? Where do migrants live generally? So it's about 40% in high-income OECD countries. And that's a mix of both high-skilled and low-skilled workers, as well as temporary and permanent migrants, students, undocumented migrants, and refugees. Like, a real mix. And then another 43% live in low- and middle-income countries. Generally, that's more migration that's driven by jobs, uh, family reunification, or seeking international protection, refugees. And then the remaining 17% are in the Gulf states, and those are exclusively economic migrants, no refugees. 
those migrants actually make up half of all of the population across the Gulf states. So one of the main takeaways for me really is that there's no such thing as a typical migrant or a typical country of origin or destination for migrants. Okay, this is all super helpful to get a sense of the overall migration picture. And one thing that's really interesting to me, Raka, in terms of migration is skills. Skills gap at destination countries, but also the skills that migrants bring with them and so on. Yeah, totally. And that's, you know, actually one of the main messages from this report. You know, the authors make the point that it's really the match between migrant skills and the needs of their destination countries that is the biggest factor when it comes to the economic effects of migration. So it's pretty clear, but, you know, basically the closer the match between migrant skills and the gap or demand in the destination country, the bigger the gains of migration for the destination countries, origin countries, and for the migrants themselves. In terms of high-skilled migrants with tertiary education, more than half of them migrate to just four countries. I was really surprised to hear this. Just four countries, Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US. So, of course, this creates problems for origin countries. You know, the report finds that in various places, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, the Pacific, people with a tertiary education were 30 times as likely to emigrate relative to their less educated peers. Okay, that's some serious brain drain. Yeah, and it really brings home, you know, how important it is for origin countries to craft policy to really manage migration for development. Uh, Remittances to low and middle income countries were estimated at 605 billion U.S. dollars in 2021. And in some countries, remittances account for more than 20 percent of national income. Nepal, El Salvador, Lebanon, that's just a few. Well, Raka, thank you so much for sharing all this information with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Just a quick reminder to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And we do have a survey we'd love for you to take, which you can find on our streaming platforms. Leave us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so we've been through some of the big findings of the World Development Report. Let's get some context to the numbers. I was joined in the studio here in Washington, D.C. by Xavier de Victor. He is a co-director for this year's World Development Report. We asked Xavier to reflect on why he personally finds the subject so important. I was in northern Ethiopia a few years back in a refugee camp, and I saw these three girls, unaccompanied minors, who, you know, by their looks must have been anywhere between 12 and 15. So three girls with no parents in a refugee camp, with no great hope. And we'll know what's going to happen to these three girls. Now the question is, do we really have to let it happen? Right? Do we really have to assume that you know there's nothing that policy could do? And I think what we're trying to say is, no, we don't. First and foremost, these people are people. They need to be treated with dignity but they also need to be treated as people with hopes, with abilities, with a capacity to affect their own lives. And every time I you know, start a presentation on refugees on this report, I always start by saying this is about people, and these are the three girls I have in mind when I talk about this. Wow, that is I mean, really powerful. This is not a situation of us versus them. This is not about one group of country versus another group of country. And actually, most countries are both countries of origin and countries of destination at the same time. So there are actually more British citizens living outside of the UK than migrants living in the UK. Right? And it's the same in, you can see, I can see same dynamics in some 
uh, developing countries and some middle-income countries and some low-income countries. Many people actually, many migrants live in Nigeria, or actually many Nigerians live outside of Nigeria. So what we want to start with is to recognize that this is not a question of one group of country versus another group of country. This is more a question of how you manage these sort of movements by countries at all levels of income. It seems like migration is going to be increasingly important for countries uh, going forward. I'm curious about the role of governments and policymakers in terms of, you know, what can they do to really increase the gains of migration, you know, both for origin and destination countries, as well as for migrants themselves? There are different types of movements, and these different types of movements call for different policy responses. And traditionally, there have been two ways to look at it. There's been labor economics, which essentially looks at the skills people bring and whether they match the needs in the destination countries. If these skills match the needs in the destination countries, then everybody gains. The cost, the benefits of migration exceed the cost. If the skills don't match the needs, then obviously it's a bit more problematic. There's another perspective, which is international law, which looks at why people move. If they move because they fear for their life in their country of origin, they need international protection. They are refugees. And the countries of destination have an obligation to host them. It's not a choice. It's an obligation under international law per treaty that these countries have signed. If, on the other hand, people are looking for economic opportunities, then the destination country has a prerogative to accept them or not on their territory. And what we've done in the WDR, in the World Development Report, is to kind of combine these two approaches to distinguish between different sorts of movements that require different policy responses so as to make sure that these movements can, as much as possible, contribute to uh, development and, and prosperity. So, Zabi, let's um, talk about specific examples here. Um, can you talk to us about s- successful policies that have helped migrants integrate um, and contribute to their host countries? So for migrants who bring skills that are in demand in their country of destination, the challenge for this country of destination is how do you integrate them in the economy, but also in society, which is you know a, a separate yet uh, a very important uh, process, in a manner that is successful. And there's been plenty of examples in Australia, in Canada, in countries like Singapore, of policies that basically provide people with rights, provide people with recognition of their, of their degrees, of their qualifications, so that they can actually engage at their level of skills in the labor market, but also open uh, um, uh, public services, etc., so that their kids can go to school, can go to health centers if they're sick, etc. There are also policies for countries of origin to try to maximize the benefit from this sort of migration. And the Philippines is very well known for the effort they're making to maximize the impact of remittances, to benefit from knowledge transfers, but also even to build skills that will be uh, useful for people as they as they travel overseas. In a way, that for the migrants who bring skills that are in demand. For migrants who you know, especially for refugees who sometimes, because they essentially look for safety, they end up in a place where there may or may not be a demand for their skills. And so the question for many host countries is, what do we do with these people? Mm -hmm. And the example of Colombia shows that the response is essentially about trying to help people integrate in the labor market, uh, international labor market, by providing them the right to work, but also the right to move to to places where there are jobs. By opposition to countries, where refugees are essentially kept at the border under tents and essentially dependent for humanitarian assistance for extended periods of time. 
you know, do, are you optimistic that, you know, these countries will and societies will learn how to better manage these kind of cross-border border movements for prosperity and development? So I don't know if I'm optimistic or pessimistic, but I ju just look at numbers. Without migrants, Italy's population is expected to be cut by half by the end of the century. Spain's population is expected to be cut by one third. These demographic trends are also increasingly present even in middle-income countries. So I think the question is not whether we're optimistic as to whether you know countries will be able to make the best of, of migration. I think the question is countries don't really have a choice and they need to make the best or they will actually face a very, very difficult uh, economic circumstances. And I guess that's that's maybe a pessimistic <laughs> conclusion, but but just maybe to, to to turn it around, what is that? What we also see is that the social, the cultural aspects in history have always been overcome, and so I think the question is how can we actually facilitate, accelerate this process of inclusion and integration for people who bring skills that are anyway in demand. Our societies have always been places of tensions, of competitions, of interdependence between different groups. The reality is some people are negatively affected by migration. Some people have skills that are very similar to migrants and end up in a competition with them. Some people live in neighborhoods where the school's quality is actually going down because there are so many migrants uh, in this neighborhood. So the fact that there is a social gain does not mean everybody gains. And so it is important to acknowledge these difficulties and then to find ways through public policies, public investment, uh, social protection, retraining of people, et cetera, et cetera, so that they actually can be supported in this transition. And unless we do that, it's going to be very difficult to uh, address the, the, the underlying political problems because people will see that besides the symbolic issues that, you know, uh, maybe you know part of of sentiments more than more than actually uh, reality. There is a very hard, uh, difficult reality for for some people that who actually need support. Thank you so much, Xavier. It was really, really, really appreciate all of your all of your information and all of your perspectives on this. Thank you. Thanks again to Xavier for that compelling conversation. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do look out for the next one and get in touch. We are at the Development Podcast at WorldBank.org. Until next time, I'm Shrimati Shreeder. And me, Raka Banerjee. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.